Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Because the sky will be filled with sulfur is a new show at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Mocha G.A. Artist Jeremy Bolin uses sculpture, film, and photography to tell an unsettling story about humanity's impact on our environment and how strange our future might look, even in a best-case scenario. Later this hour, we'll hear about the intersection of art with environmental science and the technology proposed to salvage our planet. First, the Center for Puppetry Arts is expanding their programming with Puppetry Now, a new series focusing on contemporary artists of color. The program launches on June 17th, with master puppeteer Terish Pipkins, known as Jigeto. His Spinocchio will be on view at the Center's Dean DuBose-Smith Special Exhibition Gallery, and there will be a special performance of the large-scale puppets June 23rd through the 26th. Tarish Pipkins joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Please tell us about becoming a puppeteer. When did your interest begin? My interest began 20 years ago in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was a visual artist who I consider myself self-taught. You know, I had mentors over the years, but I never had like official training. I did uh, paintings, murals, and I started dabbling with sculpture, you know, like uh, wire sculptures. And a voice in my head one day just said, make a puppet. And I did. (laughs) Uh, I hosted a spoken word event because I'm a rapper and spoken word artist as well. And the response was really good. So I started, you know, playing around with puppetry. And when I relocated to North Carolina, I got to reinvent myself and jump into the uh, art of puppetry full time. Wow. How did you come up with the puppeteer name of Jigetto? 
Uh, that's a funny story. I was actually uh, watching the last rendition of Pinocchio through um, Disney. That think this is the version where they had CGI. So my 19-year-old son, he was about five at the time. So we had the DVD and the DVD player. I'm dating myself. <laughs> I'm reading the back case of the DVD. And I'm, you know, reading the history of Pinocchio. And I'm like, well, I have to come up with a cool name for myself. And I'm like, Geppetto. And I was like, that kind of rhymes with ghetto, you know, where I'm from, from the inner city. And I was like, Geppetto, Geppetto, Geppetto. I was like, wow, that, that rhymes. So I jumped on Google. I searched it. I didn't see anything come up. The only thing that was close was a, a rock band in Brazil called Ja Ghetto. But it was two <laughs> words. And this was, I think... 2005 2006 and this is when youtube first launched so social media was starting to take off so i jumped in and i started you know hashtagging and using that name and it's I stuck with it and i've been jigetto ever since but as soon as i put the name together I, I wrote it down on a piece of paper and i spelled it every way i could till i came up with the best way and i jumped up and i said yes and i did a victory lap around my living room <laughs> it is a cool name, and I'm intrigued with how you embraced it, because I remember in 2016, the film director, Quentin Tarantino, came under fire at the Golden Globes. He used the word ghetto in his acceptance speech for the award, and there was heated debate on social media ghetto implied racism and was considered pejorative. You didn't feel that in, in embracing it for your moniker. Yes, it's, I just wanted to let the public know what they were in for, because I'm, uh, my art was always through activism. I call it myself a, a artivist, where my lyrics and my poems and my songs were confronting injustice and racism. So I wanted to keep that same persona in the puppetry world, but I wanted to take that stereotype and flip it on its head because you'll see my name on the moniker Jaghetto, but I'll come up with a puppet and I will do box solos with a cellist marionette. So I'm just confronting the stereotypes and just knocking down doors with the name. And that's how I approach my art and my shows as well. It was very intentional and confrontational. Oh, that's great. I admire it. You created puppets for Missy Elliott's music video, Where They From. I read that the team searched for months for a professional puppeteer. I'm wondering how they found you and your initial reaction when you got the call. I actually didn't build the actual puppets, but I modified them. The puppets in the video were created by the team of Furry Puppet Studios out in the Bay Area. Ah. But I did modify them so they could dance. So yes, like you said, they were auditioning for months and I was introduced to Missy Elliott through a mutual friend I used to rap with back in Pittsburgh, you know, way back when. So he contacted me on Facebook and said, yo, like I got signed with Timberland. I'm actually hanging out with Missy Elliott and she's about to make another comeback and she's looking for puppeteers. So that's how I got pulled into that circle. Wow. It's all about who you know. 
<laughs> Indeed, and, and you know some very successful creatives. You are a successful creative. How did you make the puppets who represent Missy Elliott and Pharrell Williams appear like they were dancing and twerking? Well, that was a uh, actually another puppeteer. His name is Richard Atkinson. He is the best puppeteer as far as a dancing marionette. He's actually from Jamaica. So, you know, those videos that are, you know, that surfaced a few years ago with the the really crude marionette puppets with the baby doll heads and like pieces of wood. He's from that, that field. So she flew him up from Jamaica. I modified the puppets was the builder and I was actually his backup. So I did, you know, I was doing little movements in the video, like the segment where for the Pharrell puppets is, is drumming. That's actually me. So all the technical things, that's what I do. Cause I'm a, a builder and you know a performer but he's the actual expert dancer so we we were is a collaboration that happened to made that magic uh surface oh it takes a puppeteer village i'm learning oh yeah definitely the center for puppetry arts new series puppetry now opens with your exhibition spinocchio how do you feel about being the first puppeteer in this series focusing on contemporary artists of color uh, i mean i'm i'm just blown away and, and just honored um i was just talking to my wife yesterday you know I'm, i was i'm so busy preparing for these the installation and the stage show that i never got to sit and really think about what's happening and it, it just hit me yesterday the the gravity of everything and it's and I, I mean, there's no words for it. It's, it's just an honor. And I'm just so happy they chose me, you know, to be the, the first one. Can you tell us a bit about the Spinocchio exhibition, about what's on view? Yes, there will be three interactive puppet sculptures. I uh, started this thing where I do installations where the public can come and actually manipulate the sculptures and make them move. So I'm building larger versions of robots and creatures that are in the production for the public to come and see and manipulate for themselves. So it's going to be, it's going to be pretty awesome. Yeah. I have a producer named uh, Hero out of Detroit who uh, did the soundtrack for my short film coming out as well. And he does the, the music for the show. So it's, it's going to be an experience that, you know, I think everyone really needs to go see if you're in the area. Let's talk about this special performance of Spinocchio, a hip hopera. Love that. Mm -hmm. June 23rd through 26th. What does that entail? That entails three questions. What is humanity? What is reality? And I play on the whole theory of multiverse and interdimensions. So it's, it's a science fiction story of Pinocchio told through robots. So creating an Afrofuturist robot who fights for humanity while breakdancing and through hip hop is truly fantastic. How did that idea come to you, Tarrant? I mean, 
I have a crazy mind that just <laughs> astral projects and travels. Uh, I came up with the story. The script was five years old before I even brought it to the stage. So it's being modified and changed and updated like every day to the point I have to stop myself so I can finish, you know, a stage show because I'm always trying to add on as soon as I come up with an idea. And I have a, a good friend who, who writes with me. We met in high school, so we've been, you know, best friends since. And, you know, when we do speak on the phone, you know, it'll be a few months, but when we do speak, it'll be two, three hours of just talking about, you know, uh, our ideas on quantum physics and space science and the latest discoveries. My mind is just out there and I, I'm just so blessed to actually take all my ideas and just put them into a puppet show to share my ideas with the public. I read in your bio that your passion is promoting oneness through the magic of puppetry. How does this art form enable you to do that? I'm thinking it's just like any other art form. I mean, art, anyone on the planet can listen to music, feel the same thing, uh, look at a painting and feel the same. I'm not trying to change minds of anyone's you know, political views or religious views, but I just want to share a story and for everyone to come and look at that story and come out with their own, you know, what they came up with. Because when everyone looks up at the sky, they look at the same sun and the same moon. We all share that vision. And I just want, you know, a, a much smaller platform for people to share, you know, one audience at a time and just be one with each other during that moment and that experience. Master puppeteer Tarish Pipkins, also known as Chiquetto, his exhibition, Spinocchio, opens June 17th and is on view through September 25th at the Center for Puppetry Arts. The performances of the Hip Hopra will be June 23rd through the 26th. More information is on our website wabe.org slash city lights. In a moment, artist Jeremy Bolin examines our collective human patterns and their impact on our planet. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. 
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Humans have negatively impacted the environment in many ways. Pollution, the burning of fossil fuels, deforestation. Artist Jeremy Boland decided to examine the ramifications with his new exhibition, Because the Sky Will Be Filled with Sulfur. He uses sculpture, film, and photography to tell an unsettling story about humanity's impact on our environment and how strange our future might look, even in a best-case scenario. The exhibition is on view at MOCA GA through August 6th. Jeremy Bolin joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. Would you explain the title, Because the Sky Will Be Filled with Sulfur? Absolutely. I had been working on the title of this exhibition for about six months, talking with a friend and a mentor of mine, Bianca Geisler. I had some titles I won't mention here that were not working all so well. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and she asked me, why, why would I want to call it that? And I said, because the sky will be filled with sulfur. And, and she's like, well, you have your title. I think she was right. You know, I think in the end, it's, it's, it's sort of a warning. When I think it, it reads as poetic as well, but it's, it's, a, it's a warning of what our future could look like. There's a you know, high probability of, of geoengineering things like this happening. But I think, you know, with this exhibition and with the title, I, I'm trying to form an experience to understand visually the aesthetics of, of, of some of these initiatives that could happen. Mm. How did you discover the proposed strategies for curbing climate impacts, such as injecting sulfur into the Earth's atmosphere? Yeah, so a lot of that is through my my involvement with the Anthropocene Curriculum Project in Berlin that I've been involved with for the last decade or so. And this this project has been this incredible, large-scale, sort of experimental, multidisciplinary research project involving scholars, researchers, scientists from all over the world, all different disciplines included, to have a really extra inter-multidisciplinary approach to understanding what's happening to our climate. So through a lot of the research I've done with this group and my visits to Berlin and visits with the Anthropocene Working Group and other researchers, I've kind of become interested in a lot of these topics involving the Anthropocene. I made a film about four years ago called Born Secret with another artist and writer named Brian Holmes and and a sound artist named Brian Kirkbride. And that film was investigating the Tennessee Valley Authority and Oak Ridge and sort of the Anthropocene mode of production and sort of how we, we came to be. And while I was working on that, we started to get into geoengineering and to understanding kind of what the impact was going to be, sort of the interventions into the Earth systems that could occur because of what humanity has done, essentially. So that, you know, instead of changing our behavior, uh, we would try to change the Earth's systems. Um, and there are many researchers working on this. David Keith at Harvard is sort of, I think, the probably most popular researcher working on solar radiation management. And yeah, that's how I sort of got involved. So listening to you speak about these topics and hearing about your work, 
in Berlin, it's almost possible to lose track of the fact that you are an artist because you are clearly immersed in scientific research, in environmental research. When did you first become interested in climate change? I mean, I think it's something I've always been interested in or terrified of, I guess, as well. Also about 10 years ago, um, right when I got out of graduate school, I went to graduate school, the University of Illinois, Chicago. And getting involved in this project, I kind of gave me a, a different lens to, to sort of see it through. I, I had been, but before that, I had worked with many scientific institutions. I've always been very interested in the, the art and science relationship. And I grew up and went to undergraduate and, and graduate school in Chicago. And Chicago has a lot of scientific laboratories in the region, including Fermilab and Argonne National Laboratory. In 2010, 2011, I suppose, I was accepted to actually work at Argonne National Laboratory using their beam called the Advanced Photon Source. And that was sort of an entry point into my, my kind of, I think, art and science collaborations. And I've worked at scientific institutions all around the world. I've worked at CERN um, before. I've worked at, at Sanford out in South Dakota. I worked at Yerkes Observatory in Wisconsin. So it's something I've, I've highly been interested in. And then I think my involvement with the Anthropocene Project kind of shifted that research and, and the way I was making work from, you know, I think I was concentrating on high energy particle physics. And then I shifted more into thinking about climate change in the Anthropocene. Mm. Such a fascinating intersection of art and science or science upon your art. Jeremy, please Describe for us some of the pieces in this show. So the, the show is anchored by four very large panels that are they're 96 inches tall and 48 inches wide. And they are photographs printed onto acrylic, onto plexiglass. And they sort of operate, I guess, sort of like a stained glass window. You can see through them. And then an image is projected through them as well. And these images, what they are, um, using photographic film, I photographed the sky, the daytime sky, and then I covered the negatives in sulfur and then re-exposed them. So it's sort of trying to emulate the impact we're talking about with solar radiation management. Obviously not in, a, in sort of any kind of exact scientific way, but as a sort of poetic response to this proposal. There are several floor standing pieces that are really in the end talking about coral bleaching. Obviously, as the world heats up and as more carbon is produced, it's impacting everything, but the, the coral bleaching is becoming a, a larger and larger issue. So there are sculptures that, that sort of emulate, I think in a hyperbolic way, sort of modes of cooling and creating shielding for corals. Involved in all these pieces are airplane parts as well. There are airplane tray tables and what they call a personal service unit, which is the air conditioning thing above you when you're, when you're on the airplane. Um, and thinking about global travel and you know, sort of the impact that has. I, I think in the end, one thing I'm really interested in with my work is what's at the core of these things, right? What's at the core of coral bleaching? What's at the core of these, these possible geoengineering initiatives? And there are many things, of course, but but I think when you really look into something like coral bleaching, you definitely see, you know, automobiles and airplanes, you know, our movement matters throughout the earth. 
and the impact of that movement and what what it does and what continues to do. And this brings me to an impression I had early on in reading about your work and viewing your works. At a first glance, your works offer confrontation, in part because the viewer is asked to make sense of something that appears absurd, rocks with zip ties around them, or an airplane seat with corn growing out of it. How do these arresting images achieve the message you want us to receive from looking at your work, Jeremy? Well, I try really hard to incorporate elements into these works that are both familiar and also unfamiliar at the same time, right? Because what I'm trying to, I think, create is, in the end, what I'm trying to do is to make the invisible visible in some way. The corn in the piece you were talking about is spray-painted silver, metallic silver. It's reflective corn. So talking about another geoengineering proposal of, of making crops shinier, essentially, reflect light back. So albedo management and thinking about, I don't, I don't think crops will actually ever be silver, but the sort of poetics behind that and sort of the messaging behind that is what I'm, what I'm after. I also really think about my titles a lot when I'm materialists and, and hope that the viewer will engage with that because every single material I use really has, has been really well researched and, and thought out in sort of the, the message of those materials, the meaning of those materials is what I'm sort of after. Thank you for saying that the work is confrontational, I think you said. That's what I'm really, I think, trying to do, especially right now, is I'm, I'm making works that are at a fairly large scale so that they are overwhelming to the viewer and that there's an experience that can occur when you interact with the work that hopefully is beyond language, you know, that is beyond what, what, we, what we know, because I think I, I really do believe in the power of, of the aesthetics of these works. Hmm. You are a professor on the faculty of Georgia State University School of Art. Yes. And I know your colleague, Pam Longabardi, is also inspired by environmental concern, and she uses found objects, mostly debris that has been cast into the ocean to create her works. How do you acquire the materials you use in your art? Yeah, Pam is fantastic, by the way. I feel really, really lucky to have such a wonderful colleague, and we've been able to teach together a little bit um, in my short time at Georgia State. As far as acquiring materials, I guess similar ways of, of visiting sites of significance and gathering materials from them. In these newer works, I'm, I think I'm manufacturing things a little bit more. Whereas, you know, as far as like airplane parts and things like that, I'm finding, I'm using eBay. And I'm, I, I did find a, a warehouse actually near Atlanta airport that sells a lot of old airplane parts. So just kind of, recently, oh. yeah, really kind of miraculous. It's this huge warehouse that has hundreds of airplane seats. They take them in and then sell them back to the airlines when they when things break. So that's been an incredible resource for me, you know, and using things like asphalt and, and rims of for automobiles. And, you know, th those have been things I've, I've, I've built to just find in the area that have been a little less about the site, uh, more about just finding the material wherever, wherever I can. But it's very important to me to find these materials that have been used already, that have been in production, that have a history already of, of movement throughout the world. 
With the reference to airborne sulfur in this exhibition, I was looking at other works you've created, and I noticed a recurring theme of things in the atmosphere we can't see. You've exhibited pieces like a weight in the air that considers dust particles permeating the air in Johannesburg, South Africa, a result of all the mining in South Africa. And there's also your collaborative installation, A Green Lung, a dust collection and archiving structure. Jeremy, would you tell us more about your fascination with air and the particles floating in it? Absolutely. Those two exhibitions uh, you mentioned are with a close collaborator of mine, Nina Barnett. A lot of my work, this show in Atlanta is a solo show, but a lot of my work is collaborative. Um, and Nina Barnett's, we've been collaborating for about a decade. With, with those two works, and I think my interest in general, we are so interested in how particulate moves and how it impacts um, the world we live in, how it impacts our bodies, how our bodies become an archive of sort of all these endeavors. And Johannesburg, Johannesburg in many ways is, it's a, it's a gold mine dump. When you walk through that city, when you see, I went there in 2019 to start researching with Nina, my um, collaborator lives there. So I've been, to visit many, I've been able to visit many times and, and research and make, and make work there. You know, and, and it's a city that gets very dry for parts of the year. And that mining dust, which is extremely toxic, it, it blows everywhere. And it's in, it's in everyone's clothes, it's in their lungs, it's on their bodies. And it, this all actually stemmed actually from a, a completely different project we did together. Uh, Nita and I made a film called The Beam, um, which was released in, I think, 2017. It was a film about neutrinos. And neutrinos are a particle that travels straight forever through other galaxies. As far as people can tell, they travel straight forever and ever and ever. And we did a, a project about an experiment called NOVA, where they were shooting a beam of neutrinos from Fermilab in Chicago to northern Minnesota and recording them. So we did a project anyways of tracing that beam line and interviewing people, etc. Kind of thinking about these invisible particles, like neutrinos, if, if you could see them right now, you wouldn't be able to see anything else at all. The room would be entirely black. If I snap, 100,000 neutrinos just went through your body, right? Oh so my all goodness. Things, right, it's, 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 it's amazing, right, to think about. So think, I think that was a starting point for us of like, there's so little we can actually perceive and there's so much happening. So considering the neutrino, I think we moved to a point of, of dust, which became slightly more visible and all different kinds of particulate. We have another film called And So You May Feel Echoes that also examines particulates and, and our interactions with it. And is Nina also an artist or is she a scientist? She's also an artist. We met in graduate school at University of Illinois Chicago. We've just been, you know, both very interested in, in these topics and become, I guess, more and more sort of ingrained in that community and, and done so much research. We found so many people in the scientific community that have been excited to work with us been very fruitful, and we've been really lucky with that. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. My guest is the artist Jeremy Bolin. We've been talking about his new exhibition at Mocha GA, Because the Sky Will Be Filled with Sulfur.
How does the COVID-19 pandemic relate to your thoughts of the atmosphere, invisible particles, and the ways in which humans adapt to our own disruptions of nature? Yeah, it's had a, it's had a really large impact, obviously, for everybody, right? But I, th- I think as far as, as the work goes, a really profound thing that I learned during COVID, I made a, a little project about this called Slow Pause, was that during the initial lockdown, the earth stopped vibrating as much. That was due to humans not moving as much. And so thinking about that and seeing that and the impact that had uh, was really very interesting. You know, it was obviously this horrible thing we were all going through, but it did have a, you know, it, it was hard to say because it was kind of a small amount of time, but it seemed to have a really positive impact on the earth you know, with less people driving and less people flying and, and less people just emitting carbon into the atmosphere. So that's one thing. But the other is just as a world, as a planet, having to think about the invisible um, and deal with the invisible on a daily basis, which is really complicated, I think, for all of us. And I, I think that really made myself, made Nina, made people I work with think about our work in a different way of visibility um, and, and sort of the the issues of living on a planet. And, you know, like it, for Nina and I, she lives in Johannesburg. I live in Atlanta, obviously. It's like dust from Johannesburg ends up in Atlanta. You know, and that is very interesting. You know, like anything any of us do, it ends up, it's, it's shared. We're, we're one planet. I think the, the pandemic with, with COVID really reinforced that for us and made us kind of um, really think about how any of our neighbors anywhere in the world, what all our actions impact everybody. And it kind of goes back to, you know, sulfur and solar radiation management with these, with these sort of procedures, with these geoengineering initiatives, there are a lot of questions like who decides to do this, right? What, and who does it impact? You know, you're talking about airplanes that would be in the, in the, in the sky that would be, you know, flying around the world, essentially placing sulfur into the stratosphere. So it's, it's very complicated to decide who could do the, that and who would have permission, who would impact, et cetera. And then it's also very complicated to, to think about the long-term impact of that. And again, that's proposed as a solution or, or corrective. Am, am I understanding it properly? You're correct, yeah. It's, it's proposed as a solution because it's the, and I guess the reason that I, I don't think it's like a conspiracy theory. I think there's likelihood of it because it's what this is in a, Elizabeth Colbert's new book, uh, Under a White Sky, uh, which is which is fantastic and, and it touches on this topic as well. But it's one of the only things they can do that can instantly cool the earth. And and they they know this because they're what they're doing is sort of emulating volcanic eruptions. The research for for this was, you know, in 1815 was in Indonesia. Uh, Mount Tambora, that was the largest volcanic eruption in the last 1300 years. I think it's, I think it's a level seven is what they call it, volcanic eruption. And that was a year without a summer. Uh, that was a year where there was frost in Virginia in August. There was snow in Massachusetts in July. So it, it profoundly cooled the earth because of the volcanic ash that went into the stratosphere. So they're sort of emulating this plan with solar radiation management by injecting the sulfur into the stratosphere of cooling the earth. Of course, the impacts are, could be profound. There's likelihood we would not see the stars anymore. Uh, the sky would turn white. 
think about, I mean, just think about all the other like unknowns of it, you know, and, and of um, what happens if they do it for five years and then stop doing it? How would the ecosystem adapt? All these things I've been thinking about with it. It's why I think it's, it's really important. It's also something that like, not a lot of people, I, I don't think, have been talking about or know about. And I think it's important for us all to understand these initiatives and what they could do. And I'm taken back to high school chemistry and walking through the halls between classes after someone would have a little chemistry accident and the whole school really smelled terrible for quite a while. You don't mention odor or sulfuric odor anywhere that I've read. Are they going to stink up everything too? <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't I guess that's possible. I I don't you know it's interesting. I've been using sulfur in this exhibition a lot. And it, it, it does stop smelling eventually. It's 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 interesting as it's kind of released into the atmosphere. So I, I love that image, but I don't know. I, I've never read anything about its smelling. And I think it would be kind of dissipating at such a slow pace that, that something like that probably wouldn't happen. But it, uh, but there is, you know, a lot of, also a lot of the work I've, I've made for this show does incorporate like the idea of the earth being shaped and the aesthetics of the earth being altered by the sulfur becoming part of our atmosphere. Well, I did wonder when you said you covered these pieces with sulfur, if you had to have nose plugs while you were doing it. I, I, it, I didn't, but I, I wish I had. <laughs> my, uh, my wife uh, really grew tired of me coming home smelling like sulfur every day. It was an interesting few months of working with that. Jeremy, would you tell us about the installation that incorporates images of a sediment core sample from the Jasper Ridge Biological Reserve? Yes, absolutely. So kind of back to the Anthropocene Working Group. The Anthropocene Working Group is a, a body of geologists and scientists that have been brought together to decide on the golden spike and the GSSP signal for the Anthropocene. And the, and the Anthropocene loosely means, it's a geologic term, that you know geologists are proposing that we start a new epoch based on human impact on the earth, that we have become like a geologic event, we have become like an ice age. So we're technically in an epoch called the Holocene, and they want to change that name to the Anthropocene. There's been a lot of discourse and research about this the last 15 years. So in, in the end, there's this group that's tasked with, they have to find a starting point of the Anthropocene. So it has to have a date, and it has to have a place to be an official epoch. And they do this all the time, actually, geologists do, but they do it for epochs that are happened far, far in the history, right? A long time ago. So, but this is the first time they've actually, like in real time, wanted to change the epoch. So I was invited to go out to Jasper Ridge, which is at Stanford University in California, by a fantastic team of scientists. And the scientist I was working with is named Allison Stegner. And they have a, a core, it's about 32 feet long, and it's a sediment core. And it's, it's one of the 12 cores that's being considered to be the golden spike for the Anthropocene. So this core very likely could be the actual material that changes us to the Anthropocene epoch, which to me is really exciting and fascinating uh, in many different ways. So they took this core from a, a reserve at Searsville Lake. And Searsville Lake 
has 127 years of sediment buildup because it's a human-made dam that has created that lake. And that's an also interesting kind of part of this project of the fact that it was a human-made structure that helped create this core. So I went out and we, I uh, researched with them, I interviewed them, um, and I photographed the entirety of the core. They also gave me CT scans, which are sort of like x-rays of the core. It took me through how they read it as well, they, and how much these cores are a mirror of our civilization. Uh, they offer evidence of, of earthquakes, of chemo, chemical residues, of nuclear testing, of fossil fuel combustion. And there's a lot of debate right now of what signal, what marker they'll use to define the Anthropocene. And many people think it will be radionuclei. Um, so looking at when nuclear testing and nuclear weapons raised background radiation for the earth at, at, to a peak level in like 1963-ish. So looking for these signals, you can find all of these in these sediment cores. So it's a very, very interesting thing to be able to look into the earth and to look into deep time and understand human impact. And they can, they can actually like find so much from these. They can be like in 1937, we see through this, this core that they used copper sulfate to, to get rid of the algae and the water sears the lake. You know, there's so much that's, that's recorded here. So in the exhibition, there's a picture of a part of the core, and then there's a sculptural installation that has a CT scan of the entire core on display. Jeremy, you talked about this exciting work in Berlin, and Europe as a whole is so much better about attitudes toward climate control, if not policy. What can we learn? What can we do here in the U.S. to make some kind of impact on policy change? I mentioned Pam, and part of the reason that learning about your work reminded me of her was because I think there's such a powerful message from her artwork about the importance of activism. And I think that is the takeaway from what I've seen of your work. I do wonder if you feel there's any hope for the environment after hearing more about your work. Yeah, in Berlin and in Europe, it, it has been sort of incredible to see the difference of, of how policy has been set, how funding has been dispersed, how priorities are set in general, and how things have been really well funded too, how that kind of research. When I was doing some early research for this project that when I went to Oak Ridge, you know, there were earth scientists who had almost no money at all for research. Uh, there was one scientist up there that had a, a carbon capture project going on, and he was literally using solar powered hot dog cookers and like hacked humidifiers to create his work because he had no money for it you know and, it, and so it really i think that's a large part of it is when things aren't funded and research is not funded and research is not taken seriously that the research is that is very conclusive is still disputed it's, it's really problematic i i do think there's hope you know i i think yeah i think pam's work is incredible and, and has really done a lot to raise awareness and, and help people understand especially with plastics in the ocean i think that these modes of, of artists and scientists of becoming activists are something that are really important. I try to do as well. I'm very new to Atlanta. I've only been here a few years. 
Um, so I've been kind of trying to get my footing and, and hopefully do more on those topics here as, as I get a little more settled. But, you know, I, I think in, in the end, it's, it's, I think, about trying to raise awareness to help people understand our, our impact without necessarily finger pointing. I'm really not trying to point fingers in this exhibition. I'm guilty of all this too. I just flew to Berlin a month ago. So I'm not trying to point fingers and to try to, to paint myself as someone who's the perfect human or something who's not guilty of these, because I very much am just like everybody else, you know, but, but I think what you say about policy is exactly right. It's like, we need to have actual policy change in the States. And for a while recently, it seemed like that was going to happen. And right now it kind of doesn't feel, feel that way. And in the end, I think what, what happened, especially seeing Berlin as a study and seeing Germany, it's like getting leadership at, at the governmental level that are pushing this forward, funding this research, uh, making it a priority, uh, making sure science is well well funded and well considered. Modes of public engagement, you know, and I would go to at the Hockave, at the House of Culture in Berlin, there would be a climate scientist speaking in an auditorium and a thousand people would be there. That was sort of the result of a lot of people being involved and really promoting and, and trying to, to form, you know, public research trajectories, trying to be inclusive and, and to create a larger conversation that everyone can be involved with. Part of what can be complicated about science is, is sort of the communication aspect of it, where I think things become a little obtuse and dense and, and hard for everyone to involve themselves with. And I think that's where hopefully artists like myself and artists like Pam, I think are trying to form uh, other access points. Artist Jeremy Bolin. His new exhibition, Because the Sky Will Be Filled with Sulfur, will be on view at Mocha GA through August 6th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, I'm Bill Taft. I play guitar and banjo and sing in Waiting for UFOs. We play folk, drone, ballad, ambient, improv, noise, rock, sing-alongs. I started playing music in Atlanta in the 80s. I went to shows at Blind Willie's, the Little Five Points Pub, 688, the Metroplex, and the White Dot. I met other people like me, so we just started hanging out and experimenting and forming bands. One of those bands, the Chowder Shouters, sort of opened for the godfather of punk and new wave, Jonathan Richmond. He was playing at 688, and we played outside on the sidewalk. Jonathan Richmond walked by as we played, and he gave us a thumbs up. Most everyone else hated us, but it was the right kind of hate, the kind of hate that makes you stronger and gives you a reason to write more songs. But my tongue is t-
Useless started out as a guitar riff. We played the riff in a loop so the riff could tell us what to do next. The guitar riff gave us very clear instructions. You humans spend way too much time fighting for silly things you want, desire, dream of. This effort is wasted and self-defeating. If you want to be useful, be useless. Open up. Let go. The more you think, the more you miss. So raise your hand and do the twist. And that became the chorus of the song. All we had to do was write down what the guitar riff was telling us. Do you ever feel useless? Then raise your hand and do the twist. The more you think, the more you miss. Flip the skin, forget everything, and twist. Atlanta has a thriving art and music gallery scene. iDrum, Railroad Earth, 378 Gallery, and Priscilla's No Tomorrow Space in underground Atlanta. There is always something new going on in these spaces. I love meeting the artists and learning about their work and listening to new music. Atlanta is a great place to call home because it's always had a strong DIY scene. This community of artists, musicians, and writers is fluid. It moves around the city as the city tears itself down. Little Five Points, East Atlanta, Cabbage Town, and the West End all provide spaces for noisemakers like me to gather and try new stuff and meet new people. So let's sing a song about the play inside the play. A game called Live Fast, Die Young, Leave an Exquisite Corpse. Hamlet is a song about getting lost and found. There's always room in the here and now for the ones we love and lose too soon. The longer I live, the more I know that time travel is real. Distinctions between past and present are pointless. Binary logic is a buzzkill. Hamlet is always with us. I'm Hamlet. You're Hamlet. We're all one big Hamlet. We cannot escape our ending. We can't escape our ending. And that's a-okay. Seems to me there is no scenes. You ain't that crazy. And nothing left to lose is just words, words, words for freedom. For news of future shows, you can follow us on Facebook at Waiting for UFOs. Uh, our album, Don't Let the Ass Hats Burn You, is available on Bandcamp, and we have a self titled 7 inch available on Bandcamp too. Musician Bill Taft of Waiting for UFOs. The band plays the Earl on July 1st and the Star Bar on July 7th. More information is on our website.
wabe.org slash citylights. The National Center for Civil and Human Rights presents a new Morehouse College Martin Luther King Jr. collection this weekend, a legacy of creative protest, King and Youth Activism, will showcase how young activists in the 1960s emboldened Dr. King to protest in unique and nonviolent ways. The exhibition opens as part of the Center's Juneteenth programming, and it will be on view through December. Music curated by DJ Said the Saint, immersive performances, and craft tables are also a part of the Juneteenth weekend celebration. More information at civilandhumanrights.org slash Juneteenth. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.